freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, my culminating friends. I bring you today, Ilya Shapiro, who I have recently characterized as one of my oldest social media friends by virtue of describing that term or conceptualizing that term very broadly. He reminded me a few years ago that we go back to the days before social media as currently understood, right, Ilya, when we were both on the Princeton lawyers, Tigernet email discussion list. Uh, that's right. And I was, uh, when I was in law school, trying to get some advice from you on, I had no idea what I was doing, probably still don't in terms of a legal career, but well, if you were asking me for advice, you definitely had no idea what you were doing, especially, <laughs> but especially if it had to do with career advice. <laughs> it is great to have you on after having seen you a couple of weeks ago in Washington, when you spoke to the Republican National Lawyers Association and managed to stay out of trouble in front of that tough group. <laughs> no, no protesters there, oddly enough. Not oddly enough. It was uh, it was very nice to see you and uh, everyone in my house. And I have that kind of house is enjoying your book. It's being passed all around. Uh, you, Ilya well, it's, has coming a, out, it's coming out in paperback this summer. So updated version. I just sent in the epilogue with the latest, uh, you know, details on the uh, Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation. So, so look for that. The, the hardcover is cheap if you want to get, you know, extra <laughs> copies for each room in your house, as well as, of course, the, the Audible and the and the Kindle book, even CD, if, if that's your if that's your guess. And that's only a two year old book. But the epilogue is definitely makes all the difference. And that was going to be an obvious question. You can see the book over his left shoulder. It's a supreme disorder. And it, it is not a current events book. It is a book about the history of supreme of, of, the, of politics in I wouldn't call it say the politicization of because they've always been political politics in the Supreme Court um, uh, nomination and confirmation process. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. You should be speaking to me from a, an Ivy Ivy lined from the inside of an Ivy lined office <laughs> at the Georgetown Law School, but uh, wasn't I'm, I'm, wasn't I'm still not allowed on campus. That would be uh, to see to, for me to be there would would trigger some people or cause harm, uh, necessitate some crying rooms or, or something. <laughs> that would be very provocative. So you're technically on administrative leave. Uh, that's right. Um, it's which a way of is, uh, uh, about as exciting as administrative law, I think. Um, yeah, so and no less arbitrary and capricious. <laughs> uh, uh, you could say that, but I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, uh, yeah, so this is month three now where uh, I'm being paid not to work, which is nice work if you can get it, I suppose. They're investigating. Uh, uh, very thoroughly, apparently, whether my whether a particular tweet violated university policy. Um, so you know that's the world we live in, and um, I'm doing lots of things besides keeping busy uh, speaking and writing uh, this epilogue. But besides, I've I've been averaging I think one op-ed a week as well, 
um, legal consulting, all, all these, uh, you know, trying to be a, a productive member of society, uh, despite uh, this uh, investigation into my misdeeds. Now, is free speech and free expression a it's always been part of your bailiwick, right? That's always been something that it you has. I'm, I'm a constitutional generalist. Um, uh, I like to say that I'm a simple constitutional lawyer. So certain things go, uh, go over my head. Your, your specialty in intellectual property, for example, is, is way beyond my ken. But uh, yeah, free speech, First Amendment. Um, the, an organization called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has been a huge help for me. Sure. Uh, and I'd worked with them over the years um, on amicus briefs, supporting their cases, things like that. Never did I think that I'd be one of their clients. Uh, and yet they, they've been providing me legal counsel, PR advice, the first few days, crisis management, uh, organizing letters and, and things like that. Wonder, I told Greg Lukianoff, the president, that once this is all over, uh, I'd, be, I'd become their, their number one fundraiser. So uh, yeah, the, I've become even more than I thought I would uh, an advocate, scholar, uh, proponent of the freedom of speech and, um, and academic freedom, but uh, as well as uh, an inadvertent poster boy for cancel culture, I, I guess. But um, you know, Ron, as, as, as we say, man plans and, uh, and God laughs. So this was not the way that I was intending my career transition away from Cato towards Georgetown or anything else. Uh, but, but here we are. You know, uh, it, it's hard not to think that this might not be to your advantage. It's easy for me to say. It's actually, it's not easy for me to say. I've been fired from more jobs than you'll ever have believe me uh the fact is because it, it now that you know what georgetown is about and what it's not about you don't have it hanging over your head that you're at such a you know such a weaselly place and presumably where you are you're starting you at miami is it no. um that that was an april fool's joke ron oh was it <laughs> you're referring to a facebook post where i said uh that um, that the the powers that be at, at Georgetown to to defuse the political oh, tension right. <laughs> traded me uh, to the University of Miami for three associate deans and a law librarian to be named later. That's right. Sweet that the deal with a pocket with with a bag of pocket <laughs> constitutions. Um, so I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Yeah, that was that was one of my better performing Facebook posts, and it was on April first. But are you going to actually going to? So you technically still, in other words, they haven't fired you. They know if they well, I listen, you're in a you're in a possible litigation position, so I'm not going to poke at you anymore. Um, <laughs> no, I, I am the executive director and senior lecturer at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution on paid administrative leave per what we just discussed. Yeah, I get that. OK, so um, you have. You know, another example of, of man planning and God having a great big belly laugh over it might be um, what I had thought. It wasn't all that. Maybe it was almost a year ago that I interviewed uh, Robert George uh, of our alma mater. He wasn't there when I was there. Was he there when he, you were there? He was. I actually didn't. He's become a good friend of mine, but I did not take a class from him. Uh, because he was on uh, sabbatical the, the, the year that I took uh, civil liberties, an important class that he teaches. So he was very proud of the job that he felt he had, had, not because of his efforts as such, he's not that kind of person, but that Princeton, he was proud of the university for having come through a crisis and where, you know, a professor had been 
the victim of a, a woke mob and ultimately vindicated itself and reaffirmed its commitment to the Chicago principles. And nine months later, Princeton is a dumpster fire, free speech wise. So I spoke to David Latt about what's going on in academia in a blog, in, in, in an interview that sometime today, which is April 11th, is going to be posted. Um, and he had an interesting take. And he and I agree on most things, but he was optimistic that the legal profession was going to be going to ultimately be the um this the disruptor um, of this toxic moment where we can't yeah, discuss things really i'm i'm not i don't want to say disruptor but that it would be i'm looking for the right metaphor but the the the, the there's a metaphor that it involves waters hitting the breaker you know that it was going to be the the the, the, the it, would, it would break the 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 tidal wave it would, it would be, the, you know, and I said, well, do you really think so? You know, see what's going on in the law schools. He says, yeah, but you know, those, because I, I asked him actually about your situation and similar situations in law schools. Referring to, in case your listeners aren't, aren't fully aware, this is uh, March 1st. Uh, I had an event shut down at UC Hastings, uh, just screaming and yelling as if it was Occupy Wall Street. The following week, there was a, a similar situation at Yale. A couple of weeks after that at University of Michigan, this is just law schools and just just March 2022. So, yeah. So what did yeah. David say? And this is that? just you. Well, so, so actually, no, this is not just me. The, <laughs> the, my, my, I was UC Hastings. The others were, did not involve. In fact, I spoke at Michigan <laughs> the week after Jonathan Mitchell, the the uh, architect of Texas's heartbeat uh, bill. Uh, was was shut down there, and I was not at yeah. Any, anyway, what what did David Latt say? Well, well say I'll tell that? you what. So so David actually um had I had just read in, to prepare for my interview with him his open letter to the to the dean at Yale, uh, saying hey you guys have got to do something about this hacker's veto stuff that's going on, and she had and he told me during the interview that she had come out that morning with a statement taking the proper position, which was that, no, this is not appropriate. This is, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about why Yale law matters beyond graduates of Yale law. Well, you know, as a Princeton and Chicago law uh, alum, I'm, I'm of course, I of course take the, the hashtag never Yale position. <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a somewhat juicier version of that myself. Um, but I thought he was a little optimistic about that. And, he, you know, I think and David seemed to think that at the end of the day, judges expect you to think dialectically. Uh, and if you don't think dialectically, you will fail in the litigation uh, aspect of, of the legal, of law because you won't be able to, you know, to even think the way your adversary thinks. And my my response to some extent was, well, legal profession is a lot more than courts and the laws. Uh, it is a very corporatist, the, you know, the major firms, which although they represent a very small percentage of law school graduates, they nonetheless have tremendous influence over our institutions. Um, they are absolutely bought into the woke narrative, which is, even though I was a, a, with a relatively smaller firm of 150, is part of the reason I can never 
being a well, one of many reasons, but you know, uh, but but for sure the the rate controlling reason why I cannot ever work in a in a, in a corporate law firm, um, and that these things, these cultural things, really really make a difference. Um, so we kind of agree to disagree. Just just I'm, I tend to be optimistic in general, but I don't think I could I could sign on to his view that. No, it's gonna it's gonna have to be something else. I mean, uh, you know, I just had a New York Post op-ed where I where I go into this, and there there needs to be a cultural disruption, and it has to come from people who are influential in the culture, uh, whether political leaders, uh, you know, cultural uh, avatars, whether Elon uh, Musk or Joe Rogan. Those are the kind of people who have to continue doing with it. People of that stature. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I tweeted when, you know, when Whoopi Goldberg had her little, you know, minor cancellation in, incident, and I don't think she was anti-Semitic. She was just ignorant about certain aspects of the Holocaust. She was suspended for only two weeks. Uh, I guess there was less to investigate there than in the, <laughs> the 11, 12 week thing with me. But, but anyway, I, I tweeted at her and, and said, you know, she and I should go on Joe Rogan's podcast and, and uh, hash things out. But no, no response, alas. Strangely enough. Yeah, I, I think I, I wish you I would think a Goldberg would reply to a Shapiro, but you know. No, the Goldbergs and the Shapiros never got along. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys uh, yeah, back in the pale, right? Right. I mean, they they didn't they didn't shoot at each other. They just uh, sued each other nonstop. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you're right. I mean, I do. Th and I, I think there is beginning, you know, to some extent, you know, there's always going to be some when we talk about cultural figures to a large extent, we're talking about people in entertainment, although in the case of, you know, in the case of um, Musk, you're talking about a, a robber baron. Right. There are always going to be people who want to play the um, anti-establishment clause and, um, um, you know, card. And even a guy like um, Bill Maher, has found that he can, you know, keep keep doing what he's doing profitably, and be the and and tell people things that in his audience that they uh, may not want to hear. Is it possible that there's going to be enough of that to make a difference? Well, um, there, there's two contrast contrasting. Uh proverbs or i don't know what to call them uh you know either uh if something's you know not sustainable then then it won't go on forever it will stop on the other hand um things are always darkest before it's pitch black so uh i don't i don't know if we have to go lower i don't know if there's a natural um inflection point that's going to have that's going to happen well i will say with the on the darkest point that one thing that my ob observation that i've made for the last couple of years is that the the shift to outright um, censorship and to a real moral comfort with it, with outright censorship on the left is indeed probably attributable to the fact that they're losing, they're losing the argument on important fronts. They fear, they fear argument, they fear exposition. And that's the kind of dawn that you might expect. On the other hand, people do censorship. People censor because it works. And if you can forestall the dawn by, you know, 
I mean, the Soviet Union lasted for, lasted for 70 years. Is it only 70 years or is it, wow, it lasted for 70 years? No. You know, we don't want, I don't think any of us wants to go through 70 years of anything like that here. On the other hand, you say, what's sustainable? Do you think the technology, I mean, podcasts, Rogan, and next people, the next name people think of after Rogan, well, Ron what, Coleman. What I've discovered, what I've discovered is, you know, for, if, if we're talking about kind of just crazy political views, you know, it's it's about the middle segment because you know most people aren't radicals and most people aren't counter revolutionaries either. They're sort of just trying to live their lives and the you know what online are called the normies, right? The normal people. Um, so what will cause them to pay attention and do something. Well, we saw a little bit of that in the Virginia elections last fall where education um, people were because of the pandemic. And by the way, the pandemic has certainly affected our society in lots of ways going beyond, you know, public health uh, policy. Um, and that that's an aspect of it. I think people are more aware that, uh, hey, maybe something that the, uh, the folks in, in charge are doing, maybe it's not all right. And we need to question authority a little bit more. But, you know, that happened with education policy in Virginia. You know, I think it can happen elsewhere on, on other dimensions because um, it's, you know, we, we're seeing a polarization and we're seeing kind of a, a populism of both the left and the right. Um, and then you see a, a growing reaction to it in, in different ways. So who knows whether there's going to be a technological uh, disruption, whether um, something economic, you know, if everybody's doing really well, economically speaking, then certain other things won't matter. On the other hand, if everyone's doing really poorly economically, that will also shift the culture in various ways. So it's, it seems like we're in the eye of the storm, as it were. So it's very hard to, to diagnose uh, exactly where things might go. And, you know, uh, you, did you get to teach at all before you no, this up. is what happened. My tweet, my fateful tweet happened five days before I was due to leave Cato and join Georgetown. So that's legalistically speaking, it's not even clear whether these Georgetown policies that are they're applying to my statements even apply to me because I was not an employee. So, you know, the decision was made not to rescind my contract immediately. I was onboarded, including, you know, getting paid. They're doing the 403B match and, you know, all the rest of them getting my benefits and stuff. Um, uh, but you know, when the behavior they're investigating to see whether it, you know, violated their conduct policy, anti, anti-discrimination, all that happened before I was an employee. So yeah, again, th this will all be, if it comes to litigation, which I hope it doesn't, uh, that that'll, that'll certainly be an aspect of it. So I can't ask you then in any meaningful sense or for any, any meaningful answer about what you what you pick up in the classroom what you pick up in in no, the I'm, I'm supposed to well i mean i've been you know uh, i've been lecturing a lot through the federal society law review symposia etc i've spent a lot of time talking to law students over the years uh, not as a you know i've been an adjunct professor as well both at gw uh, and uh, Ole miss law school um so i, I do uh, get to spend time with students uh, and around faculty members just not on a permanent basis when if and when i eventually am reinstated i'll be teaching one class uh, in the fall on some substantive aspect on constitutional law and a class in the spring that's more um uh, skills oriented uh, amicus briefs legal policy strategy that sort of thing uh, as well as building out the center's programs uh, facing the public and judges and practitioners and publications and things like that uh, but my sense is um, that, that there has been changes, there have been changes uh, on campus, on campuses um, uh, nationwide. 
And um, since when? When back, you say when you say um, just it's a gradual process. I don't know if there's kind of a radicalization. Well, it's hard to tell what what happened during COVID and with the George Floyd riots and all that. That certainly, I think, affected people uh, again because they've sort of been you know starved of human interaction, and so everything is magnified and and changed how we relate to each other. Uh, but I graduated law school in 2003. And I've been on the speaking circuit through the Federalist Society since 2007. Uh, and there's definitely been a, a change in, in law school culture and the types of students. I don't know whether that has to do with helicopter parenting or, or what. Uh, and I would say there's also a difference as between kind of you know, higher ranked schools versus lower ranked schools. Students are more radical at the higher ranked schools. Faculty are more radical at the lower ranked schools. Um, you know, I'd never been protested before until UC Hastings, but I have been subject to faculty boycott in <laughs> random places around the country. I mean, of course, Federalist Society students are self-selected to a large extent, but there, I think there's this perception, I think that they're different today also from when I was president at the Northwestern chapter in the, in the late eighties, mid eighties. Um, My think... wife went to Northwestern law. She was class of uh, 09. Oh, nine. Well, that would be a little bit after my time. I did manage to get out in three years. Um, I think it, you know, there is an opinion that today's Federalist Society students are more careerist. And maybe that's a good idea since I definitely, having the Federalist Society on my resume while interviewing in New York didn't do me any favors. I, <laughs> I mean, I know that for a fact. Um, now I think on, on balance, it helps more than it hurts. I mean, the, most places it won't matter one way or another, but-, but um, That's interesting. Know, especially for, for, for clerkships or for, you know, there's a lot of uh, state solicitor general's offices and, and things like that. Um, I, I, I think for corporate law, it mostly doesn't matter. You know, you just brought up a point that I, I would like to love to hear your your opinion on. I wrote an article, kind of a, I called it a white paper because I didn't want to bother getting it peer reviewed or getting it published. But I know, but I know that a couple of people saw it on Section three two thirty and on corporate censorship. And one of the subtexts of the article was that you know even if the, even if the federal government never again decides to enforce either consumer protection laws or antitrust laws, states can do that too, and they probably should. And yet there's been so little of it. And I think there was a lot of talk two or three years ago about states where we could expect to see more of it. Why do you think there's been, I mean, there are still some conservative states, by which I mean government states that are, that, that are I think you're, you're seeing more yeah. state action across a host of different ways, whether by legislatively changing uh, administrative law doctrines, how much to defer to administrative agencies and non-delegation, all of these things that lawyers talk about. Uh, Judge Jeff Sutton of the Sixth Circuit uh, in Ohio uh, has now written two books about state constitutional law and its importance. Clint Bullock in Arizona, is all, that's also one of his hobby horses. Um, State SG offices have exploded in the last 10 years. These kinds of opportunities were not around. I mean, I think 
Texas and Ted Cruz were the only one and, and Jeff Sutton and his successor in Ohio were pretty much the only one around the country. Now that's a burgeoning uh, field. So I do think we were seeing more state action of various kinds, uh, pushing back against federal control, innovation, the, the Brandeisian uh, laboratories uh, of democracy. So I think you'll, you'll see it uh, across areas and, and maybe it hasn't started happening yet on antitrust or, or section 230 type things. But I, I, think, I think there's a, a growing demand um, because of a frustration, both on the left and the right. That's what's coming out of Washington. These one size fits all solutions, actions or non-actions is just not, not good enough for us. Um, so my, my answer to you is, is stay tuned. And I think the lay of the land on whatever area of policy or um, uh, uh, regulatory authority is, uh, is going to be different. Uh, 10 years from now. Of course, conserv conservatives, at least a lot of the conservatives I know, including myself, have found themselves in an awkward position on federalism in the last few years, because on the one hand, we would like to see more of that. And on the other hand, the deference of the Supreme Court to police power, and the extent to which we even heard a couple of justices talking about a federal police power, during oral argument, at least, uh, during the OSHA case, was distressing. Um, are, are conservatives being inconsistent when they complain about, you know, the failure of the Supreme Court to take a close look at First and Fifth Amendment issues in the, you know, in the lockdown type of situation? Or is that, no, you know, Roberts, Rob, you know, the Roberts approach of I'm a conservative, and that means that I live and die by what the states say, no matter how, when it comes to police power, no matter how tyrannical that may seem to you, Coleman. Well, individual rights are supposed to trump. Um, I mean, that, that, there, there's a different kind of argument when you're saying that something the state does is, uh, is trumped by federal law. It's a different type of claim, obviously, if you're saying that, you know, you're your First Amendment, Second Amendment, uh, unenumerated rights, you know, economic liberties, property rights, whatever, are, are being harmed by whether lockdown orders or anything else. And so, you know, I'm, I'm more of a classical liberal. And so I, I would rather federal judges take a robust look at what states are doing and make sure they're not intruding on individual liberties in, in various ways. And I also want to make sure that what states are doing, you know, I'd rather the federal government, uh, you know, or the courts force the federal government to uh, give back a lot of power uh, to the states and, you know, let California be California and Texas be Texas and, and so forth, um, as long as their regulations don't uh, uh, affect uh, the rest of the country. There's a case going to be on the Supreme Court docket next term about what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause, that is the idea that California through state law is regulating interstate commerce, uh, and that, that shouldn't happen. Um, so there, there are a lot of complicated issues, but a lot of people tend to be fair weather federalists, and it just depends whether they like who's in control the of the levers of power in, in Washington. It was very distressing to hear uh, Justice um, uh, Kagan talking about, uh, I think also Justice Kennedy said this a couple of times, Justice Kennedy, I mean, Justice Breyer, going to be Justice Kennedy. Well, this is unprecedented. This is unprecedented, and I'm and I'm and I'm screaming. That's the whole idea of, of a constitution, is how to deal with un, you. How, these are first principles to apply to unprecedented situations, when nothing else is press, when nothing else has happened before, when everything else, at least we know, 
that congregational prayer is a, a First Amendment right. How, re how quickly that was just ignored by the courts for so long. And one final question I want to ask you before, before I let you go. I have made this observation. I think that given your work, you might be one of the guests I have who is best in the best position to test it, which is that judges don't only read opinions um, and they don't only rely on opinion, you know, on precedent in that that controls controls their decision making, but that there is a judicial culture. And judges, especially in the internet age, when what's going on in other circuits and other districts flies across the wires instantaneously in a way that it didn't even when you and I were both in law school, that judges look over their shoulders at what other judges are doing. Um, and that that has an influence on, on the decisions they make. Because I found, I, I, it seemed to me impossible that so many judges ruled against so many, for example, of the Trump claims in the, during the election, and so many of the COVID lockdown challenges, and they were judges coming from all different backgrounds. And they were always reaching the same result, regardless of the legal theory, regardless of the litigation posture or the facts. And it seemed to me as if there had been the development of a sort of, in the ether, a judicial um, consensus that people, that only a few crazy outliers were going to be willing to break out and depart from what are, all the I think the these are different doing. sorts of circumstances. With the, the, the post-election claims, most of those were crazy and completely invalid. The only, um, the only uh, uh, line of cases that I wish the Supreme Court had taken would be was when the Pennsylvania That's Supreme right. Court went on a frolicking detour and changed its election laws and just and that sort of issue has come up again and again, and uh, and and the court declined to take it up, even um, even, after. even after the election, right. even after everything was resolved. And and that I think is a disservice because we're going to see a bunch of those types of situations I think happen in twenty twenty four. With the COVID stuff, it's just I think everyone was a lot of judges were just afraid, and they're like, we you know this pandemic, how can I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, it was just atmospherically it was it was it was difficult. But the thing is, after the first month or so, I don't know what they were afraid of, um, because at that point, the science sort of became clear and these divisions about essential versus non-essential, it was completely ludicrous. And, you know, there's no reason to treat um, if you're, you know, opening up these kinds of uh, spaces where people can congregate. Well, why are these other types of spaces being treated differently? Um, you know, all, all of these things. And, you know, I, I think um, that became quite clear when simply a, a change in personnel on the Supreme Court started leading to different results when, when Barrett replaced Ginsburg and all of, seven, all of a sudden the five fours in favor of government power became five fours against it. Uh, as well as you started see, seeing green shoots from some state Supreme Courts that were saying, no, these you can't just have uh, the state uh, health secretary or what have you just ruling by decree, decree, especially when the legislature is back in session. There's no there's no uh, plausible way, you know, forgetting whether the how you balance the rights versus the powers under the state constitutional system. Um, there's no more justification for emergency rule by decree. You know, if the state legislature wants to pass a law, then we'll evaluate it in due course. But you can't have this 
dictatorial rule. But, but, but the you know, so that was a, definitely an area that federal courts wanted to stay away from. But they're also going back to my earlier question, it seems that there's a point at which federal courts have to must have something to say about non-delegation, even at the state level. I mean, isn't it? Well, look, for too long, conservative uh, jurists and legal theorists uh, said that courts should uh, defer to elected officials. That's what, uh, you know, the judicial restraint school. And just like John Roberts in the Obamacare litigation, you know, bending over backwards to apply a presumption of constitutionality, I think that was happening a lot. Um, you know, the, the, the liberal judges, because they liked that exercise of authority and conservative ones, because they wanted to be restrained. And so who gets it in the neck? It's, you know, individuals who are getting harmed by this arbitrary government action. No, I think that's a very, I think that the presumption of constitutionality or at the lower level, the, the presumption of legality or regularity has completely overwhelmed the, the judging, the judging fat, you know, uh, uh, functions. And we're getting a lot of cutting and pasting of multi-part tests, but not a lot of judging. But you're the one who's who you know who's going to be hopefully in a position to to teach people about that. You you have mentioned Ilya that when is it June that when the the updated um, Supreme Disorder is going to come out? The, the paperback edition comes out July fifth. Uh, we, we thought it would be right when Stephen Breyer was announcing his retirement. Of course, he jumped the gun a bit, or at least, uh, you know, his decision was leaked by the White House before he wanted. Um, as it happens, the hardcover came out four days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed. Uh, so uh, this this year, I guess we're going to have some big uh, decisions at the end of the term, at the end of June with uh, abortion, Second Amendment, uh, administrative law, other things. Uh, and then my, yeah, the, the paperback's going to come out. So that'll be part and parcel of my, my media tour then. Hopefully I'm reinstated by Georgetown at that point, but you know, the, the, the leading theory is that they're waiting for uh, uh, the uh, semester to end. So the students are off campus uh, to, to then quietly reinstate me. We'll, we'll see. Best of luck in your endeavors. And thanks so much for agreeing to come on and uh, please do stay in touch. And uh, let me know if there's anything we can do to help. Yes, yeah, uh, send me books. the link when this is posted. I'll put it up on my Twitter account and oh, get nice. you know mobbed because of that, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, well, anything I can do to you know to tarnish anyone's reputation, I'm always <laughs> always up for that. Great talking to you. So long, Ilya. Thank All you. Right, take care. Ron. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.